Welcome to the Olive Tree Church podcast channel. Whether you are listening in from our beloved Durban, South Africa, or from further away, we trust you feel welcome and included in what God is doing in our community, and that you feel inspired by today's message. It's just such an amazing scene of Jesus encountering Peter for the very first time. And there's quite a bit going on there, but I think the, the guys of The Chosen have just done a phenomenal job at bringing their story to life. And so often we read through these stories and uh, we don't quite understand what happened in those moments. And I've really been loving... Is that the cowbell? More cowbell. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Take two. Okay. And that was just such an amazing scene of Jesus encountering Peter for the very first time. And there's quite a bit going on in that scene. Uh, but the guys, the makers of The Chosen, have just done such a phenomenal job at bringing that to life and helping us understand um, the weight of those moments and, uh, and what they meant to the people. And I think so often we can read through those stories and we kind of miss it a little bit um, of just how... Um, moving, encountering Jesus was. Um, but for, for us there, we can understand that in that moment, Peter was completely undone. And maybe you're asking, why was Peter completely undone? Like, what was it about that moment that just uh, really shifted and changed Peter's whole life? Now, uh, obviously, Peter's a fisherman, and uh, he's a commercial fisherman. Uh, I'm also a fisherman, but not a commercial fisherman, and also of the underwater variety. I enjoy spearfishing. Uh, and there's a few things you need to know about fish, uh, fishermen. Uh, number one is we absolutely thrive on hope. Every time we go out, uh, we really believe this is going to be the moment that we catch the big one or haul a ton of fish in Peter's case. And so you, you build your hope up and that's what gets you to keep going. And you kind of live on this froth and this dream of the next big catch and, you know, Instagram and boasting to your mates and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so Peter goes out fishing and he's got this sense of expectation and then he fishes all night and he blanks. Uh, blanks means you get nothing, okay, in fishing terms. I'm going to teach you some lingo today. Um, and so he blanks. He just completely gets no fish. And what happens then to fishermen is what was the hope and this high emotion completely tanks. And uh, in Peter's case, there's the added weight of the fact that he's got a family to provide for. He's got bills to pay. And so now he is spent the whole time fishing and really doesn't have income of any kind. And so that's quite a crushing moment for Peter. Um, and in that space, uh, Jesus provides him with a miraculous catch of fish. Now, the Gospels are really clear on this, that this catch was miraculous. Okay, It was a miracle. Peter knew it was a miracle. And I've had a few moments in my life when I really uh, experienced God's miraculous provision in my life. And it's really quite humbling and amazing because you just realize how much God loves you and how involved He wants to be in your life. I remember uh, when Teresa and I were preparing for our marriage um, and she had moved over here uh, from New Zealand, New Zealand, from Kiwiland. Uh, and uh, so she had come over here and she wasn't able to work at that stage. And we were planning to get married. We were preparing a wedding, but we literally had no money. And, uh, and so we went ahead in faith. And in that space, we just experienced God's miraculous provision for us. Uh, 
people started to uh, just phone us up out the blue and say, hey, God told us to pay for this, for your cake, for the dress, for um, all the beverages, for the food. And like that kind of fell into place. And then um, during that season, I remember I applied for a credit card. It was probably about, what, nine years ago now, first time I got a credit card. And um, I, I went to that application, not because I wanted to get into debt in case, it's because I wanted the e-bucks from FMB. You should sign up for e-bucks, they're great. Um, and uh, I applied for a credit card. And so in that process, it looked like they had added this new credit limit. So say they gave me whatever, 20 grand or whatever credit limit, that added that to my um, account fee, or to my account, not my account fee, that would be a very expensive bank fee, uh, to my account. And I was quite confused about this. So I went into the bank to have a conversation with him and I said, look, I've applied for this credit card. There's obviously a new limit and I just want to know how much is that limit and what belongs to me and what belongs to the bank? How do I tell that? And they said, no, no, you've got that wrong. That's all your money. And I was like, no, no, you've got this wrong. There's no way that's all my money. I don't have that much money. And they convinced me I did. It's probably the first time in the history of the world someone went into the bank to say, you've given me too much money. And, uh, and I remember walking out of the bank with just this incredible sense of like, I don't know what just happened, but God's done something amazing. And it was deeply humbling. And I was so aware of the sense of the goodness and the kindness of God that He was involved in my life, that He was providing for Teresa and I, and that He wanted us to, to walk into this beautiful season of life. See, God's miraculous provision kind of undoes you because you see His kindness in that space. And Peter's undone. You see, Peter didn't have a relationship with God at that point. He, he wasn't living for God. And so when he sees the goodness of God in the context of his own sinfulness and his own rebellion against God and his own unbelief, he's completely undone and he falls to his knees and he says, Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. He's seen God's goodness and kindness in the context of his own sin and it undoes him. And you see this again and again in the Gospels when Jesus encounters people, particularly for the first time, but again and again, when Jesus encounters people, he encounters them with goodness and kindness. And there's something about that kindness that undoes them. Let me just give you two examples. The first is when Jesus encounters uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. This is John chapter 4. They're journeying, they're walking, they're getting to the hottest part of the day, they're tired. Jesus sits down at the well and the disciples go off into the nearby Samaritan village to buy some food and he's left there by himself. And along comes this Samaritan woman. Now there's a few things you need to know about the Middle East and one of them you don't have, even have to go there to know this, but the Middle East is hot, okay? Particularly in summer, it's dreadfully hot, okay? You're talking 37, high 30s. So if someone is going to the well in the middle of the day, it's because they don't have anyone to go to the well with and they actually want to be by themselves. And uh, in that culture, we know this from other places in the scripture, uh, the women would generally go to the well together either early in the morning or in the evening when it's cool. And yet this woman is going in the middle of the day because she has no one to go to go with. And, uh, and she actually wants to be alone. She doesn't want to be with the other woman. And so the backstory of this woman's life is that she uh, had been married four times and the person she was currently living with wasn't her husband. So she's, uh, in that sense, been rejected over and over again. She's got failed marriage after failed marriage. And also she's a bit of a moral pariah because, um, you know, maybe it was one of those other women, because it's a small village, one of those other women's brothers that she had been married to 
and got divorced from. And then another brother that she got married to and divorced from. And another and another. And now she's with another. And so she's a moral pariah. And so no one even in her own village really wanted to have this kind of relationship with her other than the guy that was living with her. And, um, and Jewish men in those days would never speak to a woman one-on-one. They would never do that. They'd always have to have someone else present. And they would definitely never speak to a woman of such low moral standing within their society. And yet Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. A Jewish religious man strikes up a conversation. The one man that should never have spoken to her goes after her heart and tells her about herself, tells her about her life and presents the gospel to her. And so there's something about his kindness engaging her. But then Jesus does more than that. Because he's engaged her and she experiences this change, she rushes back to the village and she basically becomes the first missionary to that village. Jesus chose her to go and tell her village about the good news of Jesus. And in that process, uh, that whole village turns to Jesus. Jesus spent a few days there ministering to them. And that village turns to Jesus. So God chose this woman who was isolated and sent her back as the bearer of good news. And he reconciles her not just to himself, but also to her whole village in that moment. Just such radical kindness of Jesus. You've got another man called uh, Zacchaeus. And uh, Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector of that region. And the Chosen series are so well at helping us understand how hated tax collectors were. But essentially, these were people that um, were working on behalf of the Romans and collecting tax from their own people and extorting their own people. In other words, overcharging them. And that's how they became so wealthy. And it's very clear, Zacchaeus is a wealthy guy. He's super wealthy, which means you're looking at a guy rolling in dough and you know the reason he's so wealthy is because he robbed us blind and we're poor and we're struggling and we're under stress and we're under strain because he took our money in the name of Rome, our occupiers and our conquerors. Zacchaeus is a hated man. And uh, Jesus is coming to town and Zacchaeus hears he's coming to town. And so he climbs up this tree. He's a short guy. He can't see Jesus. He climbs up this tree just to get a glimpse of him. And Jesus is walking by and he stops at the tree. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, he knows his name. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house and have food with you. And in that culture, you would never have eaten with someone unless you were really good friends with them and you had a sense of um, good relationship with them or they were people of high moral standing. And Jesus picks, I want to say this bluntly, the scum of the town to say, I want to come to your house. I want to experience your hospitality. I want to eat with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to be with you. And Jesus uh, engages Zacchaeus and this act of kindness results in this repentance, this change in Zacchaeus because uh, he takes him home and, and they have this time together. And then Zacchaeus says to Jesus, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I've robbed anyone in their taxes, I'm going to pay back four times as much as I took. That's an amazing change around. And so the kindness of Jesus is this precursor to the change in Zacchaeus's life. And I can think of my own life. And I can see two examples when God showed me such amazing kindness. And one was through my dad, and uh, I'll tell you about that now. And the second was with him and how God used that to shift my heart and bring me to himself. That's when I gave my life to Jesus.
Now, I had grown up in a Christian home, so I knew what our morals were as a family, and I knew what our Christian values were. And, um, and yet, at 16 years old, I had rejected those values, and I'd really begun to party with my mates and drink quite a bit. And so my parents were planning this um, day away, a Midlands meander. You know, it was meant to be a nice romantic day together as a couple get away from their kids, especially these rowdy, rebellious teenage kids. Um, also, I had two brothers. My older brother was in that same space, I suppose. And um, they were, had gone off, and I took this as an opportunity to invite some friends around. And so I invited my friends around, and I invited this other friend that I was pretty close with called Russian Bear. And Russian Bear and I, we had had like a great relationship for quite a while because it was only 18 rand a bottle. How's that for inflation, eh? Um, and so uh, uh, Russian Bear was there, my mates were there, and we did what we normally did, and we just uh, got carried away. And um, I remember just this um, moment when my parents pulled into the driveway about five hours earlier than they should have because they were smart like that, and uh, they caught us red-handed, and there was no amount or ability to act uh, like we weren't um, Russian bed. Um, completely to get away with this. Like we couldn't pull this off. We were obviously um, fairly inebriated, I think is the word. And, uh, and we were bust. And you know, you just get that sinking feeling like we're bust. And, um, and they ended up sending my friends home. They had a conversation with their parents. And then it was my turn to face my parents. And uh, I, I decided like, I'm just going to play this thing hard. Like, I mean, what's the worst they can do to me? And so I was just hard, like completely, no sense of remorse. I don't care. That's how I played it. And I remember my dad coming into my room and I was expecting, you know, this talking down and these consequences and the punishment. And all my dad said to me, he said two things. My son is easy to stop. And where's your relationship with God? That's all he said. And he got up and he walked out. And I was like, <laughs> Where's the um, punishment? Where's the consequences? Where's the talking down? Where's any of these things? And there was something about that moment um, where he just responded to my guilt. I knew I was guilty. I knew I'd done wrong. And he responded to my guilt with his kindness that just started to shift my heart. And um, I mean, I acted like I didn't care. I went out that night and got uh, inebriated again. And, uh, but it really began this journey where I started to ask some serious questions. And uh, when I think about that story, I, it was actually a little bit before that that God had really begun the journey. And I remember like I was sitting in the space as a 16-year-old where I had kind of started to feel the weight of my sin. So on the one hand, it's like, this is what me and my friends were into and this was my social life and this is what we we're doing. And on the other hand, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I, I was carrying the sense of guilt and the shame and I was resting between, I want to give this up, but I'd want to hold on to it. And the guilt and the shame just started to wear on me. And so one night I, when I was thinking about all the space and uh, I remember just opening my Bible. I wasn't a Christian, but I had a Bible. I opened my Bible and I went to this verse in Isaiah 43 verse 25, completely by chance, but not by chance because God was involved. And this is what that verse said. And this is God speaking. It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins anymore. And I remember just being struck by the fact that God had made me a promise that he was going to wash 
away my sin, that He wasn't going to remember my sin anymore, that a day was coming when I wouldn't feel this guilt and the shame. And I didn't understand all of that, but this is what I kind of carried inside of me. And you know, when I thought back about it, like God could have given me any verse. I could have opened up to like Proverbs chapter three, where it says, woe to you drunkards. I could have read that verse. But I was already experiencing the woe. God didn't need to remind me that there was woe in that space. But what was so surprising that was in the midst of my guilt, His kindness came and it completely caught me by surprise and God used it to begin to change my heart. Now Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You see, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God uses His kindness to bring us to repentance. Now that is quite surprising because so many of us think it's God's with a big stick. God's anger, God's wrath, God's discipline, God's harshness, God's consequences. But God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And you've got to ask this question, why is kindness such a necessary ingredient to repentance? And it's really because of what repentance is. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change the way you think. So it doesn't mean to feel really guilty and really bad about your sin and then change. It doesn't mean to be threatened by God with consequences and then change. It just means that you change the way you think. And when you change the way you think, you change the way you act. Let me give you an example. And this example is from a few weeks before that encounter at home when my parents uh, bust us uh, red-handed. A few, actually, sorry, one week after that, after coming to faith. So probably about three weeks after I got bust by my parents, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And the next Friday night, I was going out again to another house party. But now I knew I was a Christian. And because of my upbringing and uh, the fact that my parents had done such a good job, it helped me understand uh, Scripture. I knew that drunkenness was no longer an option. So I went out and I fully planned not to get drunk. I just told myself, I'm just going to have one drink and that's all. Now, you probably know what happened already, okay? Because I went into that party and you're like, you know when you've been really, really close to someone, but then you're not quite on speaking terms anymore? So I went to this party and I saw my good friend, Russian Bear, and I was just like, how's it? I don't know if I should say how's it or not, but like you say that awkward, how's it? Okay, one drink, no. And then, you know, old patterns kicked in and you probably know what happened, but before long, I was on the Russian Bear train again and, uh, and I got drunk. And now I was a Christian, but something so surprising happened. For the first time in my life, I never felt guilty and I never felt ashamed about drinking or being drunk. What happened, though, was quite surprising, is I just had this epiphany. I don't have the self-control to go out, have a drink and not get drunk. In the five days that I've been a Christian, I haven't developed that self-control yet. What a surprise. And, uh, and so I just made this decision uh, not to go out and drink anymore. I'm not going to drink at all. And what was amazing is I experienced this change of thinking, whereas before I used to think, how can I go out and get drunk? Now I just had this change of thinking. I've got to change my relationship to alcohol, with alcohol and I can't drink anymore. And it completely changed my life. You see, when you change the way you think, you change the way you live. And that's what God's about. He says, man, if I can help them change the way they think, then I'm going to help them change their life. They're going to behave 
differently. And so um, what's absolutely crucial about this is the origins of this changed thinking pattern is in God's kindness. You see, when you're stuck in your sin and you're stuck in your guilt and you're stuck in your shame and in that space, you know that uh, God's a righteous God and you're feeling your shame, you're feeling your guilt. And as you turn to God, you see His kindness. That's the first place where you begin to change the way you think because that's not what you expect from God in that place. You expect anger. You expect condemnation, you expect guilt, you expect shame, and you look into his eyes and rather than seeing a disappointed father, you see a kind father that's looking at you and saying, my son, my daughter, I'm gonna be with you in this process. I love you. And that's how God uses kindness to begin to change the way we think first about him and then about ourselves and the lives that we live. And you might be surprised to know this, but uh, uh, the act of repentance itself is a gift from God. We don't make a choice to repent. God gives us the ability to repent. So I'm going to prove that to you here from Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. It says, When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. Now, who are these others that heard this? The others that heard this were these uh, Jewish uh, believers, followers of Jesus Christ that had been living for God. And when they heard that Gentiles, people like you and me, had been accepted by God to be a part of His people, they were completely shocked. And so when they heard about God's goodness to them, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege, the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Repentance is a privilege. God gives us a gift and the ability to repent. You see, I think it's an amazing thing that people can change. And I think it's an amazing thing that in the story of my family, God took both my, my, my grandfathers, both of whom were alcoholics, both of whom met Jesus, and both of whom changed radically and gave up drinking for the rest of their lives. I think that that's a privilege, that God gave, gives us the ability that we can actually be different. From the inside out, God changes us. God changed my grandmother. My grandmother was a very hard lady. She had grown up in England um, and her father had died in World War I. She never knew him. And then her mother committed suicide when she was 13 years old. She spent all her years in bomb shelters during World War II. Uh, teenage years in bomb shelters during World War II. She ended up marrying a man who turned out to be an alcoholic. And so she met Jesus, but she still had this hardness to her and she could be quite sharp with her mouth. But I just remember the last two years of her life where God's kindness caught up to her and I saw this gentleness overtake her heart. And you know, they say stuff like, you can't teach old dogs new tricks she wasn't an old dog. She was a daughter of the living God. And as she encountered his kindness, it completely undid her. And that kindness started to flow through her. And I realized that God had changed her at the age of like 78. And I think of my own life, so many aspects of my life where God's changed, uh, changed my, my view on stuff, changed my view on sexuality, changed my view on finances, changed my view on fear, changed my view on immigration, changed my view on so many of those things. And what happens is as you see the kindness of God, it changes you. I mean, why would you change your view on finances? 
unless you saw the kindness of a loving father that longs to provide for you as his child. And as you catch a glimpse of that, it changes your view of finances where you don't have to fear or worry lack. You don't have to try and hold on to it because you know you've got a Father in heaven that wants to and longs to and has promised to provide for you. Why would you change your view on sexuality unless you saw a loving Father who gives us instruction to not to harm us, but to, to, to save our hearts from heartache and brokenness and pain? And really prepare us and keep us for the gift of marriage and sexuality within the gift of marriage as a beautiful expression of oneness. Like unless you see the kindness of God that brings you to the point, why would you change? Why would you change your, your view on greed? Where you go, I've got to get as much money as I can. I've got to hold on to it as much as I can because this is for me and my family. This is my security. This is my sense of affirmation. Why would you change your view on these things? Unless you saw a God in heaven that makes you secure, that makes you love, that gives you affirmation for free and that you don't have to worry to try and get it from other sources. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're struggling with, but you need to see the kindness of God because when we see God's kindness, it works a change in us and that change is called repentance. And unless you've seen God as kind, you haven't seen God. I want to say that again. Unless you've seen God as kind, you haven't seen God. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your unbelief and your fear and your insecurity, there's a loving Father who says to you, my son, my daughter, I love you. I'm proud of you. I know you. And I want to be a part of your story. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for the radical kindness of God. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're better than we expect, that we can search your riches, we can search the goodness and the kindness of you, and you're always kinder than we think you are. You're always better than you th we think you are. You're always more loving than we can possibly conceive you as. And I pray, Father God, that we encounter your kindness again and again and again and go through this beautiful process of repentance again and again and again as our minds are renewed to the truth of who you are, a loving Father that's for us. In Jesus' name, amen.